This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, today we're discussing the opium wars between Britain and China in the 19th century, a conflict that forced China to open its doors to trade with the Western world. Thomas de Quincey describes the pleasures of opium like this. Thou hast the keys of paradise, O just, subtle and mighty opium. The Chinese had banned opium in its various forms several times, citing concern for public morals, but the prohibition was ignored. The East India Company held a monopoly of the production of opium in British India. Private British traders continued to smuggle large quantities of opium into China. In this way, the opium trade became a way of balancing a trade deficit brought about by Britain's own addiction to tea. The Chinese protested against the flouting of the ban, even writing to Queen Victoria, but the British continued to trade, leading a crackdown by Lin Zexue, a man appointed to be China's opium drug Tsar. He confiscated opium from the British traders and destroyed it. The British military response was severe, leading to the Nanking Treaty, which opened up several of China's ports to foreign trade and gave Britain Hong Kong. The peace didn't last long and the Second Opium War followed. The Chinese fared little better in this conflict, which ended with another humiliating treaty. So what were the main causes of the Opium Wars? What were the consequences for the Qing dynasty? And how did the punitive treaties affect future relations with Britain? And was the outcome even positive for China? Joining me to discuss this are Yang Wenjung, lecturer in modern Chinese history at Manchester University, Lars Lahman, research fellow in Chinese history at the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, at the University of London, and Shun Zhou, also a research fellow in history at SOAS. Yang Wenjung, Britain was keen to trade with China. Can you give us some idea of how important China was in the, say, late 18th century in terms of wealth and influence? Right. I think China was very important because Britain needed tea and tea could only be procured from China. So that was the key, I suppose, that why uh, the West went to the East. It was thought by some to be the wealthiest uh, country in the world in the 18th century. Can you give us some idea of where its wealth lay? Well, generally speaking, historians have been arguing that 18th century China probably was richer than 18th century England. It's very possible. What other goods were the British seeking from China? Mainly, I would say, tea, porcelain, silk products and other things, mainly tea. And this we're talking about a sea trade because there'd been a land trade for a long time, hadn't there? Right. The land trade was carried on at the same time and we called the Silk Road on, uh, on land. And there's, this one is called the Silk Road on the sea. So... And the Silk Road on land was earlier. It was carried on later, but not to a substantial extent, as on the sea. And recent studies have shown, actually, it was the Portuguese who first discovered and shipped opium to China. Yes. British made several diplomatic overtures to China. Can you tell us about Lord McCartney's visit in 1793? Lord McCartney went to China, and the big story was uh, whether he cowed out or not. <laughs> in the Chinese literature, they said he did. And in the British literature, it says he didn't. It was a failure in the sense that he didn't procure any treaties or favourite nation trading status for Britain. Can you tell listeners what kowtowing actually meant? Kowtowing meaning uh, kneel down and hit your forehead on the ground. 
three times when you see the sovereign. And this was too much for Lord McCartney. And allegedly, he said that he only performed the conventional gestures he would do to his own sovereign, which is one knee down and uh, bowing his head. This is a big dispute in the business, in the history business, whether he cowed out or not. Can we develop that, Laslam, and the Qing dynasty, they'd ruled in China since the 1640s. Can we develop the idea there that, of not being too keen on commerce with other countries? Mm-hmm. I would say that the opposite is the case. The Qing dynasty are actually a very open empire. They established contacts with the neighbours to the north and also after they'd uh, pacified the borders um, further to the west as well as um, in uh, the area which is nowadays, uh, ref- which for some time was referred to as Indochina, northern part of um, Vietnam, for example, was under their control. But um, they had a very active uh, policy of encouraging trade, so they were not a closed empire. So what was the problem with the British thing? Because that, that clearly was a problem, as uh, yes, uh, Young has said. Yes, they come in uh, during a period within the internal development of the empire, the early parts of the 19th century, when internally, both internally and due to external considerations, for example, the growth of the um, relative military power of the British and especially the East India Company in, in India, when the Qing dynasty saw the need to apply uh, the brakes in the involvement of foreigners. Can you tell us about the trade balance between the the two countries and before the first opium war? Well, it changes very rapidly in the two or three decades before the opium war, but um, in So we're talking about the first two or three decades in the 19th century. In the 19th century, that's right. Can you give us the main points then? When it comes to the import of tea, we we look at a figure of about uh, six million silver dollars in the for the 1830s, which the, the the British would have to pay in silver every year, every year, yes. Where did he get that from? This silver was part of a um, global movement which originated from the silver mines of South and Central America, and then via the trade triangles which uh, the colonial empires were constructing during the precisely this time, they found their way into China, and that's why China is actually referred to as the silver grave of the world, because every silver dollar that is minted would end up in China sooner or later. So the silver's going out and we're running out of silver, Shenzhou, and we need something else to trade with China to bring back this massively important tea. Can you tell us how, in the beginning of the 19th century, how this led to using opium as a trade? Well, opium was uh, um, one of the most desirable goods apart from silver because um, it's a bit like wine, you know, opium can be kept, can be hauled and can, you know, and the price of opium sort of fluctuates according to market. So in a sense, opium is one of the most desirable currency. And also because opium, it's easy to carry, whereas in China, there was another currency, which is um, um, copper, which is very heavy. It's very difficult to carry around. So for the Chinese uh, merchants, they much prefer to have opium instead of copper, because there was a shortage of silver, so they need, you know, like opium and to replace it. Did the British work this out, or did they stumble on it? Did they say, we have the great poppy fields in India, we can reap, uh, harvest opium, uh, poppies turn into opium from there, we have a good form of currency now and we'll use it to buy our tea? 
Well, I would say they happened to be there. I mean, the British were not the first one、um, to bring the opium to China. In fact, back in the ninth century, Arab has already started to bring opium into China, but the quantity was very small, and China also、um, produced its own opium in some parts in in south of China, also in southwest. But、um, at the time, opium was mainly used as medicine. Was exclusively used as medicine. The quantity needed was very small, so only very small amounts being brought in. Then eventually, Arabs replaced by the Portuguese. Then the Portuguese also in the 16th century they introduced another,、um, you know, kind of a new. Mode of delivery system like the smoking from the New World into China, which became very widespread in China, and it just you know really took off, and which paved the way for the opium smoking in the China、um, from the 17th century onwards. And opium smoking transformed opium from a medicinal product to luxury pleasure, and which helped the、um, kind of widespread of opium、um, in China, and、uh, so it. Created the market, and by end of、um, 18th century, 1793, the and the British starts,、uh, you know, the mon- monopoly of opium production in Patna,、mm-hmm. and which was far superior quality of opium than opium being produced anywhere else, which become the most desirable opium in China. That's why the demands for Patna opium was really huge and. So the British sort of、um, was able to, you know, kind of、um, control the trade more or less. Excellent. Can you just give us, before we move on, give us some idea of the massive、uh, need in Britain for tea? Because I think this might strike some listeners as amusing, but it was an enormous、uh, a- a quantity that was demanded by the British public at that time, wasn't it?、Uh, what happened in, in Britain is the same. As the same process that we can also see in other industrialising countries, it's essentially the transition from an alcohol-based mode of、um, uh, refreshment and.、Uh Also, provision of energy to one which is based on a new world com- or on imported commodities, and of course we have chocolate, we have、uh, tea, and then we also have、uh, sugar, which are all colonial imports. Now, this essentially created the basis for a completely different diet. The breakfast, as we know it today, was essentially invented. That meant that every single household in in Britain had to switch from. Beers, which would be produced, brewed the night before, to tea. So it was an、um, enormous figure. You wanted to come in.、Then. Yes, opium smoking was part of a larger consumer trend that started the Ming Dynasty, that lasted until the Republican era, even today. It's to consume foreign goods. So it's part of a larger thing. But although it became the lead consumer item, and so it had a process of. Of filtration down the class line, going from luxury item to a common necessity in almost 500 years' time. Just like tea, the process of tea. How did tea become a working class drink? And by the time that the British came in in the late 18th century, early 19th century, it was the time when it went through watershed. Can I ask you, Junjie? They're trying to Chinese kingdoms here trying to ban opium in the early 19th century. Is this to do with worries about the public health, or to do with the fact that this is depleting their silver stores? Their silver is now having to go out for opium. 
Well, um, there were several reasons. I mean, it's partly to do with social control because opium smoking originated um, from South Coast where um, Qing has been having difficulties of control these border areas. And so, um, you know, like opium was smoked in groups and which was saw as some kind of potential, you know, like threat to the, so, to the control. And uh, also there was an internal conflict within the Manchu courts and the Han um, officials has used anti-opium as a vehicle to challenge the Manchu authorities. So um, they argued on the grounds that um, um, opium in smoking causes social decay, moral decay. So we, we've come to this man, uh, Linzer who was appointed by the emperor to stamp out the opium trade. Can you briefly tell us what sort of man he was and then what he did? Well, Lin Zexu, um, he was born in 1785, a late Fujianese. We know that Fujian is um, one of the points where opium smoking was first introduced into China. And Ling, he, we don't really know very much about him except he was extremely clever and at the age of 14 he already um, got his first uh, imperial degree. In 1811 he got the highest form of degree and entered the imperial academy. Then after that he had a series of very successful civil servants career. Before the Opium War, he was more known as a um, reformer, and that was probably his greatest contribution. And yeah, but what he did, um, as I understand it, was that the, he demanded all the opium, and the traders retreated to the 13 industrial... Yeah, the estate, factories. And yeah, he surrounded this with the army, and they withstood the siege for two months, and then, he, then they gave in, and he got his hands on all the opium. Yes, yeah, uh, he did. Um, and then after that... Can you take up the story now, Yang Wen? Yeah. He went to Canton in early March. Then he ordered the surrender of opium. When they didn't, he surrounded the factory. And at the end of March, and the siege lasted about two months. Finally, they left the house, the f- toting factories with the opium there. They didn't... There's a difference between surrender and all that. Mm. He got ha- hold of the opium. He burned them on the 3rd of June... It's official figure, agreed figure among economic historians, about 20,283 chests. And he started burning on the 3rd of June. It took three days. Burned with um, fire, salt and lime and flushed out to the sea. And the ceremony was witnessed by three missionaries. It lasted three days. And 3rd of June today is still commemorated as anti-drug day in China. The, we had the, the British, uh, we had Charles Elliot, the British Chief Superintendent of Trade. He was based in Canton. How did he react to this? Well, first of all, we have to, we have to clarify that this was not a sudden war. This was a period of tension which built up. Oh. And Elliot was very much uh, involved in that from the very beginning. So he, and I have to stress again that the official British involvement is actually one that uh, respected the laws of the Qing Empire. So you will not find the East India Company legally importing or smuggling opium uh, illegally. 
nevertheless, but nevertheless, nevertheless Char- Charles Elliot, uh, who was an upper-class Scotsman, and he was a British chief mm-hmm. played a role in this. He did, yes. He was very much in favour of extending the opportunities for British traders, and therefore by extension uh, for uh, foreign traders in, in general, European traders, by flouting the regulations. And th- there's a certain discrepancy in the, uh, in the way that uh, Qing regulations are seen by the people on the ground especially the the western merchants on the ground because they were just aware of the corruption that existed at petty official level whereas the east india company would have been familiar with all the the, the laws but nevertheless elliot decides to actually break the law and he is involved directly in um, that's after the destruction of the opium in um, conflicts between uh, between well, I would refer to them as pirate ships, commissioned by him and uh, his supporters, uh, and war junks. That's what characterises so the next phase. unilaterally the... takes his, punishes the Chinese for what's going well, on. He, Sean, yeah, can yeah. I just yeah. clarify something here? I think, actually, initially... He actually compiled the Chinese rule. He actually ordered the British merchants to surrender opium. Mm. That's why they handed the 20 chest opium. But at the time, it was also to the advantage of the merchants because there was so much um, Indian opium came into mm. China and which drove the price down. And the, the foreign merchants were really have a problem how to get rid of those opium. So mm. they actually they were very happy mm. to surrender opium. And what happened was after Lin Zhou burned those opium, the price of opium suddenly rose. The sword, it was sort of, you know, the demand increased ever more. After this opium was, was burned in public, the the foreign traders, especially the British, went back and complained mightily about this. And the British then sent forces there, which started the first opium war. So they cared enough to start a war about it. Well, well, again, there's a discrepancy between uh, the the diplomatic wranglings, if you like, and the situation on the ground. Because what happened, uh, what gave rise to a military response by by Britain was the increasing were increasing attacks by um, imperial war junks against uh, traders who I just now referred to as pirates, because that's more or less what they were. They were engaged in uh, contraband trade, and um, it it was this very determined. Um, reaction by the Chinese uh, coastal defences and um, navy that actually prompted the um, the British to intervene. And they intervened with uh, not just um, a uh, sizable fleet, but also with the latest technology. They came with uh, iron-plated steamers, which uh, the Chinese had never seen before. But Lin, it was considered by the emperor to have made a mistake here because he was dismissed having done this. Yes, yes. And Charles Elliot was considered to have made a mistake by yeah. his retaliation. Two, two casualties of uh, yes. <laughs> So they both were dismissed. But then when the British came with a, with a very big fleet, which the Chinese had no idea that the British had this size of navy and this yes. firepower, um, things did get serious and we were into the first opium war. Do you want to take us from there? Yeah. Can I make up a little bit before? the yeah. After the burning of the opium, it was actually, as, as Lao said, it's, it's a period of attention. What happened is the, the foreign merchant community, some went back to Macau, some went back to Britain, some, some hang around Hong Kong. The real beginning of the war is called uh, the Battle of Kowloon. It was in September when a bunch of foreign sailors uh, went out to, uh, got drunk, and they went to... 
Kowloon because Kowloon is more sort of a village, has its grocery stores, and they wanted to buy alcohol from a local grocer called Lin Weixi. And then the grocer thought that you are already drunk. I'm not going to sell you any stuff. And, and then they beat him up, and he died from the wounds next day. And that became the the real cause of the war, mm. because that made the Chinese coastal guards and uh, start to to fire at the foreign ships, saying, "You must hand over the culprit, and you must hand over." That was the cause, the first shot to be fired. So that's that. So uh, the British Navy, a part of the British Navy, rose up from East Indian from itself, which is right. a massive navy. Right. As Lars said, with armor-plated ships, right. and um, they they opened fire. They were they were under the leadership of Henry Pottinger, yeah. who didn't even have to take the whole fleet up to Tianjin, which is the throat of Beijing, which was where Elliot actually went, but yeah. didn't secure anything. That was the reason he was fired, and then. Henry Pottinger didn't even have to go up there. He went to today's almost just halfway through, not even Shanghai. You know, going no. through into Nanjing, he managed to bring the Chinese down to their knees, and the treaty was signed on 29th of August, 1842. Why was the Treaty of Nanjing? Why was it called an unjust, an unequal treaty? It opened four more treaty pools apart from Canton, and uh, allowed um, the foreign countries to station consuls in all these uh, treaty ports, and uh, enforce the Chinese to pay indemnity to the British and to pay the cost of the fleet turning up. That's right. Yes. So it's an enormous amount of money, and they gave Hong Kong, Las Lamas, Hong Kong. This rock was given to the British, yeah. uh, but th- this was a Chinese. Uh, this has been a long Chinese tradition of giving land for peace. Can you tell us yes. about that? Well, well f- first of all, I'd like to come back to the term "unequal treaty." That's a term which uh, is really coined from the 1920s onwards because it becomes part of the nationalist propaganda that um, the 19th century problems of the Chinese Empire were actually due to the treatment it. Received by foreigners, which is definitely not the case, I would say. But it was um, peace treaty, wasn't it initially? Yes. Now there's a there's a long tradition of um, exchanging part of the imperial territory for agreements, most importantly trade agreements, and the most important ones for the Qing dynasty are the Treaty of Nanjing and of Qiangda, which uh, take us back to the beginning of the Qing Empire, where they traded whole swathes of territory up in St- Siberia with the Tsarist Empire, and and that worked beautifully because until today, with a brief exception in the late 19th century, uh, these borders are respected, and the trade between the two countries, including this sore topic of uh, missionary involvement, um, was actually. Uh, um, uh, it never became a problem because of this, because of these treaties. Now it was therefore almost natural that the Qing would opt for a very similar approach, trading a small piece of land in the sea, Hong Kong Island, barren rock, a barren rock. Yes, it's usually referred to for a trade agreement, which actually profited the empire as well because it it was not an imposition of unbearable agreements it it simply meant that foreign traders could trade directly with uh, with chinese traders rather than go through the uh, twofold threefold obstacles which the Canton system had put in their way before. Can I come back to Shunzhou for a minute? So this is the in Nanking. This is a peace treaty, and it's only later. Lars has pointed out that it's about eight years later that this is then regarded. Uh, uh, the propagandists that was an unequal, unequal treaty, and as often happens, you look back and you rearrange history yeah. in your own favour. But at the time, you're sure that the Chinese thought that this was fine. This was a, a, a acceptable uh, treaty at the end of this first Opium War. 
Yes, I, and it was、uh, fairly acceptable because this was not the first incident. That a few years ago,、um, prior to signing this treaty, the Chinese has signed a treaty with the Caucasus in Central Asia under very similar terms. So it was quite, you know, usual thing for you know them to do. I disagree with that. I think、uh, I think the majority of Chinese literati and political elite did not think it was equal, and I think for a long time,、uh, a lot of people,、um, even in the twentieth century, even educated people like my parents could not come to terms with this. Yes, there is nationalism. There is redefinition of history, reinterpretation of history. True, I agree with that. But I think at that time and for a long time, and that will come take us、uh, to the to the consequences of the European War that which I would like to talk about is is this. That is very much linked to the internal conflicts within the Manchu court, because anti-opium has been used by the Chinese officials to use it to challenge the Manchu authority. And by the end of 19th century, with the rise of nationalism, anti-opium became a vehicle for you know the nationalism. And、uh, Lin Zexu suddenly got erected as a figure. This anti-opium failure become anti-opium hero. So it's switching all the time here. I'd like to stick to this、uh, to this Nanking Treaty, though. Why we're there? Why do you think it? Why do you think it was unequal、uh, and thought to be unequal at the it, time? It shouldn't be said unequal.、Yeah. It's it, you know the, the term 不平等 It's it's invented by the Chinese in in the early twentieth century. Maybe it shouldn't be said unequal.、Um, I don't know, I don't have a good term for it. But at that time, a lot of people did not accept it, and even in the twentieth century, did, did not accept it. And, and it, maybe it shouldn't be unequal. Maybe it should be say something else. I don't know what. About fourteen years later, after heavy trading by the British and great British fortunes were made in the first half of the nineteenth century、uh, in China, massive fortunes due to the opium trading. What led to the second opium war, which broke out in eighteen fifty-six? The second opium war really should be viewed as a continuation of the first opium war. It's really the unfinished、uh, business. The incident that that、um, that brought it,、uh, you know, brought it out is、uh, the a Hong Kong, a Chinese-owned Hong Kong registered, which means British、uh, ship, was searched in Canton. The Chinese suspected of piracy and opium smuggling, what have you. And the British was not happy with it, and there was the talk about flying the flag. The flag was on, the flag was not on. Anyways, that was the excuse in many ways. And the British shelled Canton, and then they went there,、uh, Lord Elgin, and captured its governor and took him to to India. He who later died in India, and they took the the fleet right up to the coast again to Tianjin, and they secured. The Treaty of Tianjin, and the treaty basically will allow the British to establish an embassy. You see, that was the thing that the, the first opium war didn't get, and、uh, to legalize opium、uh, import. And this was also in conjunction with a French missionary being killed in China. And the French demanded that they should allow not only missionaries but open all、uh, China up. And the, what made made it different was the Russians and the Americans joined forces. So they all procured treaties、uh, due to the Second、uh, Opium War. Lars Lamm and the Qing administration was trying to fight on two on several fronts here. Then, well, 
That that is uh, precisely the reason why I uh, would argue that the opium war and the um, difficulties with the foreigners in general in the early part of the 19th century, they, they, they were simply in a corner, in a remote corner of the, uh, the, the, the vision of the politically more aware uh, population at the time because they had genuine problems. And what were these genuine problems? These were problems um, concerning uh, popular uprisings, millenarian movements which had begun towards the end of the 18th century. By the middle of the 19th century, these uh, uprisings uh, were so uh, significant that they actually threatened the dynasty, the existence of the dynasty. We all know about the Taiping, of course, the counter-dynasty which was established with uh, the capital in Nanjing. But um, that wasn't the only one. We have uh, the Nian uprising later. We have uh, various uh, ethnic uprisings in the corners of the empire. So these were genuine concerns. Uh, the, what what so happened saying, in the... This is very interesting. You're saying that, that what we're talking about from our... British perspective, the the first opium war, the second opium war, round the coast, that sort of thing. These are, I'm exaggerating, okay, but these are a, a, almost a sideshow compared with the big problems that the these Qing are, dynasty had elsewhere in these China. These are cosmetic problems. Now, I'm not saying that the long-term influence of this uh, was equally superficial, because on the contrary, um, I think the long-term consequences, and um, I'm prepared to take criticism for that, uh, were actually very positive for the we Qing Empire. We can talk Empire. about that in a minute, but I want to get through this second war so we know where we are. Um, um, can you tell us a bit about the, the effect of the Second Opium War and then the treaty, the Treaty of Tianjin, that followed it? Well, the Treaty of Tianjin opens um, 10 more ports, treaty ports in China, but it also um, um, opened up internal trade within China, so foreign ships can now sort of freely navigate on the river of Yangtze, which really sort of opened up um, the inland China. And um, it also allowed foreign missionaries to go in, which previously they were not permitted to go in, inside of Chinese interior but because of um, the Treaty of Tianjin has allowed them that freedom and uh, you also um, one of the, um, the other demands was to um, make opium trade legal or import of opium legal is this a sense? Is this a sense of imposition, young man? Is it that that now the opium trade is being forced on the Chinese because of this treaty in a massive way? Many more ports are open, many more countries are involved. Even though the British have such massive resources, having these poppy fields in India and this great uh, post-Trafalgar uh, naval force, this is a sense of which we can say opium is being forced in in order to get the tea. God help us out. Mm, you can say that, uh, I suppose, in theory, but the real picture is a bit more complicated. Um, I think there is also the Chinese demand for foreign goods at that time, the Chinese dependency on foreign goods at that time, and also there's the opening... Which foreign goods were they? Uh, a lot of yanghuo, foreign, um, you know, from the late 18th century, Xinhuaserie goes, you know, all those uh, sing songs, uh, not necessarily from Europe, some are from Southeast Asia, uh, to dyes, to cloth, to cotton products, a lot of new things, Industrial Revolution age Chinese. stuff, you know, a lot of things <laughs> go into China because China was urbanizing rapidly, so the middle class needed those things. And also the Chinese uh, government realized the urgency of modernizing, so they need 
need a lot of other things as well. And the Chinese merchants themselves um, would certainly welcome this and would lead to the, the early uh, you know, capitalization of, of China. Now, do you want to come in there? Well, again, that uh, sort of emphasizes the point I tried to make early on. Um, we have a, a process of uh, rapid um, urbanization which um, uh, focuses on, on these new treaty ports in China and it actually leads to the creation of a of something which uh, many historians would refer to as a, of, of modern China, a, uh, a, a socio-economic basis which uh, actually provided the uh, foundations for the Republic and then later People's Republic of China. And that demand for foreign goods uh, underlines the uh, willingness of the population to actually absorb things from abroad. So again, if the uh, population had been so revulsed by the uh, uh, events of the Opium War, would they have accepted that? I don't think so. We've gone in a very short time, really, in three generations, from China with a great wall around it, not wishing to trade with anyone, uh, when McCartney turns up in the 1790s, um, uh, to a China that's willing to take or having to take a great number of goods from many countries, and that, you think, is positive, or uh, whichever way you look at it, for the longer-term future of China. It it is, but, I mean, please always keep in mind that the the latter part of the 18th century is quite an anomaly in 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 the history of Chinese empires, because um, most of the greater uh, territorial Chinese empires uh, are actually characterized by um, uh, by trade, extensive trade, intercontinental trade, and we can trace that from f- from dynasty to dynasty. And the Qing are no exception in that. So, in a way, the events of the eighteen uh, forties uh, and then fifties they actually correct this. Um, Tendency. You opened China for free trade, which become inevitable whether China wanted or not, and which is a positive thing. Really, it helped. In fact, when you think about it, opium really contributes for China. You know, helped China to um, take up the international stage to become a member of international community, which um, is what happened in 1910 when China became one of the first country to, you know, kind of join the, the international ban on opium. We, and, the chi- and the first international um, anti-opium conference was held in Shanghai. Can you tell us the effect on the Qing dynasty of this uh, Second War? Uh, I suppose it's long term, and you, if you will, it's still going in a way because it opened China up, and the urbanization, commercialization, modernization, whatever process is still going on. I suppose it's also the difference of internal and external on the international stage. Um, there's one thing that I would like to emphasize, and I'm slightly concerned with it, is the uh, West evolving from sort of gunboat diplomacy to human rights diplomacy, and now China is rising again. And, and at the time when um, Chinese officials who are steeped in the rhetoric of nationalism and, and integrity of Chinese empire, civilization, 5,000 years, what have you, all that. And you meet up with the foreign uh, delegates and, and, you know, they go to China to business. At the end of the dinner, they always lecture Chinese officials about human rights. And for a lot of them, even people like my father, just said, you have no rights to lecture me about human rights. You didn't treat me well. And I remember going to a hearing, Martin Wolf said that, and how we treat China will affect, uh, you know, the peaceful the peaceful rise of China. That is my uh, little concern as a, as a historian, Qing historian, that what the long-term consequences of the opium wars. That's what I... 
So you're saying that the Chinese are still very resentful of the gunboat diplomacy of the British and the way not, they were... I'm, fought, yeah. And, and that... that, that I'm just trying to reinterpret it. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, not... Uh, I suppose it's... Well, what are you? Yeah, Sorry. I'm saying it's selective memory. It's whoever is in power and what personal uh, emotional baggage. And obviously, my father was quite uh, resentful of being lectured by Margaret Thatcher's delegation on human rights. And he came home and said, you know, she has no right to lecture me about human rights. So you're seeing, you know, this generation of officials, there are some people. For me, it's a different story for my generation. A lot of us, like Shun, educated abroad, and we don't feel as strongly. But there are people, and there are the nationalist education, there are the textbooks, there are the se selective memory, so we have to be careful. Shun, can you... Sorry, do you want to add uh, opium um, opium war is still used in China yeah. as an important yeah. vehicle for, you know, promote nationalism from time to time. They can dig out any time. Yes. Lars, do you want to come in? I'm still not quite clear about this human rights. I mean, human rights change, and if you... Uh, I, I think being le one, pe one, one about, country lecturing another is... It, is never a very pretty sight, but still, I don't, I don't, I don't quite get the point there. It's humiliation, humiliation. Right. A country suffered, and the selective memory, the country's historian, government, whoever is responsible for instilling that into history textbooks, making sure that younger generation yes. remember that. Yeah, you see that? That is the historiographer is con you know constructed. It's all around this theme of humiliation. And that's still there. Uh, no. Yes. In, in fact, uh, that's linked to the rise of China as well. You know that China must emerge now. You know to get rid of this humiliation, yeah. to wash yeah. away the hum um, You know the um, the memories of opium war. You yeah. know the suffering. So just, uh, and, this uh, is fascinating. Just one, one second. So the, those two opium wars have that leverage today. Uh, um, 150 years on for the last one or more. Well, it's not those two opium wars. There's the century of unequal treaties. Yeah, but so you're back to unequal treaties. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, one of the last pronouncements of Deng Xiaoping before he died, and he died, of course, uh, just before the handover of uh, Hong Kong, right. uh, was that um, with that handover, 150 years of uh, um, humiliation uh, would be rectified. And he, I'm sure he wanted to live to see that day, but uh, uh, that wasn't to be the case. When did the opium trade between Britain and China um, peter out? How did it end? Uh, it, it didn't end. It sort of eventually phased out, um, partly because of the... There was a treaty. There was a treaty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a yeah. treaty. Yeah, yeah I mean, there was. Yeah, but, but by that time, already, you know, opium was replaced by other new form of narcotics, and the market has changed... Um, you know, like um, morphine and heroin start to flood in the market. So by the 20th century, it's quite different. Even though Chinese still used opium, but it was quite exclusively kind of mm -hmm. like it was also quite expensive by then. Um, but after <coughs> 1870s, the Chinese domestic market has sold the production, you know, um, and it was a huge quantity of opium being produced inland China, in Sichuan and Yunnan, which supplied, um, you know, the, the larger Chinese market, whereas the imports of the opium was uh, very expensive, for better quality was confined to the members of the elite and wealthy people. So finally, Lars, you just to reiterate the point that you make, that you said you didn't know whether, whether everyone would agree with you, that this, this opium wars and this opium trade had a, a positive effect in bringing China into... Uh, the 20th, 21st century? Well, yes, or if you adopt the forward view, yes, of course, but you could also go backwards and say it, it brought 
China forward into the Song period when they had a very lively um, exchange with um, other countries. I don't quite think that we can see it uh, in such a linear way. But um, uh, in any case, it did contribute to very significantly to um, opening up China's economy to the outside world and then speeding up the process which had already started centuries earlier of um, urbanization and commercialization of China's economy. And um, we, we can see the relative importance of agriculture decline rapidly during the ni- uh, sort of very late 19th century. Republican period, because of all the warfare, there's a, a hitch, but then now again, it's, uh, we can see that uh, the commercial sector, the industrial sector, I mean, um, uh, uh, has actually overtaken the, uh, the, the primary sector, the ag- agrarian sector. That uh, is not the consequence of the opium war, uh, but it's, um, the opium war certainly contributed towards that trend. Finally, young, sorry, briefly, and then I want to go find it. Uh, no, uh, actually, just add to what Lars was saying. That's the point I was trying to make earlier about Lin Zexu. That was his greater contribution than, than his anti-opium legacy. It was that he was trying to introduce Western knowledge to the Chinese. He was one of the first ones to in, you know, in, in, um, translate foreign books into Chinese. One of his books, which was published in 1841, called Gazetteer of um, for continent, which is supplied as basis um, for other reformers after him. They used it and his book to compile other sources and introduce to China foreign knowledges and foreign worlds, basically. So he was, in a way, opened up the Chinese eyes to see the outside world. So this was the positive thing you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. We were driving but to the negative much, thing of the opium was war. much more effective than his anti-opium measure, which turned out to be a failure. And finally, finally, I, I think I'd like to encourage uh, listeners to dig deeper into the opium war, the trade, the Sino-British uh, diplomacy, the extraterritoriality that really caused the war, the, the death of the, the grocer, and also the consequences of the war. Of course, is is you know of the wars is yet to be seen as China rises. So I encourage people to go and dig more into the war and see what we can learn from history as China rises. Thank you very much. Thanks, Yang Wenjung, Shun Zhou and Lars Laman. And uh, thank you for listening. And next week we'll be talking about symmetry. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.